So this is Mark 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, uh, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we look at it together, okay? Father, we do pray that you would send your spirit so that in these next few moments, um, he would teach us and he would open up our eyes and unclog our ears and soften our hearts. And it really is my prayer tonight um, that you would comfort the afflicted and that you would afflict the comfortable. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before my wife, Catherine, and myself, before we lived in Boone, we lived in Charlotte. And we lived in a um, kind of a rougher neighborhood in Charlotte. And it was not uncommon for us to hear gunshots uh, in our neighborhood. And on one particular occasion, we're at home at night, uh, watching the television, laying on the couch, just kind of settled in for the night. And we hear this boom, this pop right out front of our house. And shortly after the pop went off, we heard this woman screaming and crying. And it sounded like it was like on our front porch. So, of course, I get up, run to my phone, call the police. You know, Catherine, I don't know if I had the lights off or whatever, but Catherine goes to the window and she's, you know, peeking through the blinds and boom, we hear another, you know, pop going off. And I'm on the phone with the police freaking out, telling them, hey, we've got gunshots. I think we've got a woman dying on our front porch. It's like right here. You've got to come now. <laughs> and the whole time I'm freaking out and telling, you know, the cops to get here, Catherine's looking at me doing this. Abort. Get off the phone. I'm like, what? 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 And so I eventually hung up. I didn't, I didn't you know, police are still on the way. And Catherine says, I just, I just now figured out um, Obama just won the election and people are celebrating with fireworks in the street. <laughs> okay. So the, uh, the police are going to come bust up this, uh, this you know, celebration, apparently. I don't know what happened. The police never showed up. But my point is, is that I was looking out and interpreting reality wrongly. I was misinterpreting what I was seeing out there in the world. And it took my wife to come in and change and fix and correct the way that I was actually understanding what I was experiencing in the world. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because Jesus is going to do the same thing in this passage. He comes in from the outside and he's going to look at you and he's going to look at me and say, you are misinterpreting reality. And he's going to radically change the way that we see three things tonight. So these are the three things I just want to look through with you. What we're going to learn, we're going to learn the bad thing about being good, the good thing about being bad, and then the amazing thing about Jesus. Those are the three things. And actually, I flipped it. Uh, So the first one is the good thing about being bad, the bad thing about being good, and then the amazing thing about Jesus. Those are the three things. He comes in and changes the way that we see things. Okay? Let's just look at these one at a time. First, the good thing about being bad. Well, the story begins, as you see, is that Jesus is out walking along 
a beach. Jesus likes long walks on the beach. And he sees this man named Levi, who is a tax collector, sitting at his tax collector's booth. And Jesus calls him to leave his post and to come and follow him. And Levi gets up and does this. Now, the weight of this will get lost on you unless you understand what a tax collector is. Tax collectors would, wait for it, collect taxes. But what they would do is they would collect people's taxes and give them to this oppressive nation called Rome, this juggernaut empire that had come in and taken away the people of Israel's right to govern themselves. So tax collectors were... um, Despised, They were hated because they were funding the, the, the man, the oppressors. And on top of that, tax collectors were notorious for taking in more taxes than they actually needed so that they could skim some off the top and take some for themselves. But here's what's interesting. The tax collector in this story is named Levi, which is a Jewish name. So here's this Jewish man who has has betrayed his countrymen. He's betrayed his own people in order to finance the oppressors against his people. So he's he's a sellout. He's a traitor. He's a liar. Everyone hates him. I mean, this would be like a... This would be like a, a black man in, in Mississippi in the 1800s who was helping to find uh, his black friends and sell them to white slave owners. That he would be despised, hated, a total, uh, a total traitor to his people. And what I want you to see is that this is who Jesus pursues. This lying, greedy you know, sell out, this traitor, this is who Jesus pursues. And if you look at verse 15, after Levi starts following Jesus, Levi throws a party and brings all of his tax collectors, scumbag friends and sinners, and everybody's hanging out together. And actually in the Luke's version of this story, it says that they're drinking together. Jesus is partying and hanging out with these types of people, the bad crowd. And I promise you it's not grape juice and fruit punch. Jesus is hanging out with this type of crowd. And here's the crazy thing. Here's what, we resp- here's what we see. The good thing about being bad is that you actually know that you're bad. You know that you're a mess, and therefore you actually are open to responding to Jesus. Because that's what's going on in the story. These people know that they're a mess. They know that they're the bottom of the rung. They know that they're bad. And because they know they are bad, they are open to responding to Jesus. And that's the first thing that we have to see. These people who know that they're a mess, these are the people, the very people that Jesus pursues. This is the good thing about being bad. The people who know that they are a mess, who know that they are needy, are the very people that, that God seems to draw close to. John Newton was, uh, he's the famous author behind the hymn uh, Amazing Grace, which we sometimes sing here. I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, But John Newton was not only a hymn writer, he was a pastor. And back in the day, the way that pastors really cared for people in their flock was that they wrote letters. And so he would write letters to all of the people in his church who kind of lived all over his region. And so after he died, somebody went around and, and got a hold of all of these letters and compiled them into one volume and very creatively titled it. The Letters of John Newton, and, uh, which, which you can buy. I would totally recommend to you. It's amazing. One of the letters he writes to one of his people in his church is titled, The Advantages of Remaining Sin. 
And he lists out the advantages of remaining sin. And here's this pastor writing someone in his church and saying, look, when Jesus saves you, your sin, your issues, the evil inside of you doesn't just instantly go away. In fact, it kind of remains with you for the rest of your life. And then what he does is say, there's actually, you have some advantages to that. There are some benefits to that. And this is what this guy writes in this letter. I want to read it, uh, uh, quote this uh, section to you. He writes this. When after a long experience with your own deceitful heart, after repeated proof of your weakness, stubbornness, ingratitude, and insensibility, after all these things, and you find that none of these things can separate you from the love of God in Christ, then Jesus becomes more and more precious to your soul. You love him much because much has been forgiven for you. Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying that the... The more bitter tasting your sin is to you, the sweeter Jesus will be. Now look, I know that there are many of you in this room probably tonight that don't trust the Bible, don't believe in it, think this is all made up. But if you would, just for a second, let's just assume that this story is true. Because if this story is true, do you know what this means? This means that Jesus is not afraid of the garbage in your life. And isn't, isn't that freeing? Isn't that comforting to know that the God of the universe is not afraid of the mess of your life? This is actually the people that he pursues, people who are not good, people who are messy, people who are screw-ups, people who are hurting. And what we see is Jesus does not pursue us because we are good, because we have intense quiet times. Because we have amazing worship experiences, because we're pretty, because we're smart, because we vote in a certain way, because we're discipling other people. He doesn't pursue us because of any of that. He pursues us just because he loves us. And that's the first thing that we have to see. The good thing about being bad is that you know you're bad and you know that you need Jesus. And that's why you're, you're actually perfectly poised. You're, you're in the perfect spiritual position. To actually respond to who Jesus is when you know that you're a mess. That's the good thing about being bad. Let's look at the second thing. The second thing that Jesus kind of flips the script on us about is the bad thing about being good. And really, I should have said bad things because what I want to do is I want, I want to read, uh, or I want to highlight two bad things from this passage. We could do more, but we're just going to look at two. The first bad thing about being good is that you avoid people. That's the first bad thing about being good is you avoid people. Well, to, to set this up, to set up what I mean by being good and avoiding people, not only do we have tax collectors and sinners in this story, we're introduced in verse 16 to these guys named the Pharisees. Now, what are Pharisees? Well, Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They, they took spirituality very seriously. They were so serious, so serious. In fact, <laughs> in fact, did y'all just think of Batman like I did? I just thought of the Joker. Um, I'm not going to do it. Uh, they were so serious that they believed that God loved them because they were good. They thought that they were good people because they were doing all the right things. They were believing all the right beliefs. They were doing the things they were supposed to do. They were avoiding the things they were not supposed to do. They were good people. But the problem was, the reason why they were not really good is because they were unbelievably proud of how good they were. And their 
They were looking at their life and saying, the reason why they have any self-confidence or have any sort of self-image or have any identity is because they do the good things, they believe the right things, they vote the right way, and they don't do the bad things. And they don't believe the bad things. And they don't vote the bad way. They are good, and they were proud of the fact that they were good. And here's what we learned. Whenever your self-confidence or your identity is based off of what you do or you don't do, you have to, by necessity, look down your nose on other people. For example, when I was in high school, I uh, did not drink alcohol. And I thought, as a high schooler, that I was pretty good because I did not drink alcohol in high school. And because I thought that I was good, the people that I knew in my classes and knew in school, the people that I knew that did drink, uh, I didn't want to be around them. I avoided them because I knew, because I'm good because I don't do this, they are bad because they do do this, and therefore they're beneath me, and I'm better than them, and I don't want to be around them. And so I avoided them, much to my shame now looking back. But whenever your self-confidence, whenever your identity is based off of something you do or you don't do, you have to avoid or distance yourself from the people that aren't living up to your standards. Look, this is why... The Pharisees at this party in verse 16, they're like, why is, why is Jesus eating with those people? They cannot figure out why Jesus would even want to associate and be around these types of people. Now, let me speak to the people in the room that do consider yourselves Christians. Because my guess is there are people on this campus or there are places on this campus that you refuse to go. And people on this campus that you refuse to associate with. Uh, Maybe it is the people that party, the people that do drink. Maybe those are the people that you don't want anything to do with. Maybe it's the people that are politically liberal. Or maybe it's the people that are politically conservative. Maybe it's the Greeks. Uh, Maybe it's that girl down the hall that you think is a skank. Maybe it is... I know you are capable of thinking that about other people and therefore would avoid that person. Who is it on this campus that you look at and say, I want nothing to do with them because I'm better than them. They're wrong and I'm right. If that's you and you consider yourself a Christian, you have to ask yourself some very hard questions. Because that's the behavior of not somebody that's saved by grace. That's the behavior of a Pharisee, of someone who thinks that they are saved by their own goodness. And therefore, you really have to ask yourself some hard questions. That's the first bad thing about being good, is that you avoid people. The second thing is that you're blind. You're blind. Look at Jesus' response to all of this in verse 17. I'll read it again. It is brilliant. He says this, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what he's saying. If you go to an emergency room, you walk into the emergency room, you only see desperately sick, needy people. You don't find healthy people hanging out in an emergency room. And Jesus is saying, I have come for those people that know that they are sick. And this is why being a Pharisee is so dangerous. This is why being a good, you know, moral, upstanding, religious person is very dangerous. Is because you will not run to the doctor because you don't see anything wrong with your condition. You don't run to Jesus and say, I need help, I need desperate, I need healing from you. You wouldn't do that because you don't see anything wrong with you. You think, you know, deep down, 
I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. You know, sure, I make mistakes. I screw up here and there. But, you know, when it really matters, when it really counts, deep down at my core, I'm a, I'm a good person. And what Jesus is saying is, you are actually in more danger than the most flagrantly sinful person on this campus. You are in extreme danger if that's where you are. Because you wouldn't run to the doctor. And people who have fatally, who have fatal diseases and don't go to the doctor, they die. And Jesus is saying, we're all sick. We're all fatally sick. I will admit it, uh, this past summer, I watched The Bachelorette every week with my wife, and I have zero shame about it, by the way. But if you happen to have watched the show, I know that almost all the guys just got up and left in their mind right now. Um, if you watched the show this summer, or didn't, there's a guy on the show named Ryan, who um, you know was this over-the-top, arrogant, uh, you know, self-righteous, just turd. And what he would do, I mean, he, he, would, he would doctor and kind of trim his beard for like an hour in the mirror every, every, uh, you know, every night. And he would say things like, uh, I, you know, I'm not being arrogant, I'm just being truthful. And uh, he was just like the slimiest, most arrogant, over-the-top character on the show. So you get to the end of the season and, you know, the final men tell all where the, uh, and I watched that too, where the interviewer guy is interviewing the panel of guys. And I thought it was very interesting. He brings Ryan up and he says, okay, you know, you've got all this criticism floating around you because you're so arrogant, but you just say you're not arrogant, you're confident. Okay. Could it not just be that you're just arrogant? And here was Ryan's response. It was, it was telling. He says, no way. It is impossible that I would be arrogant. Look, any time, any time that you say, it is impossible that I could be X or do X, you are unbelievably blind. It's impossible that I could be racist. It's, it's impossible that I would be sexist. It's, it's impossible that I could actually violently hurt someone. It's impossible. That's, I'm not capable of that. If that is you... If you're saying basically deep down I'm a good person, I just make mistakes here and there, but deep down I'm not that desperately needy, you're blind. According to Jesus, and you're in extreme danger and in more danger of the most sinful person on this campus. And look, here's how this works. Whenever you get criticized, whenever you get um, judged by someone, you know, whenever you kind of feel down on yourself, there is a voice that bubbles up from your own heart to bolster your own self-confidence. And that voice that comes up, this happens to me, this happens to you, is that voice that says, well, at least I don't fill in the blank. At least I don't get hammered. At least I don't cuss. At least I'm not angry. At least I'm not fat. At least I'm not prude. At least I wasn't spoiled. I know how to work. Whatever that is for you, whatever that voice is, that, that thing that comes up, that is the thing that's trying to convince you that you are good. And as long as that's where you run to find your confidence, to find your identity, to find your comfort, you won't need Jesus. And that's dangerous. <laughs> Look, this is the same way with me. That voice comes up to me as well. And this probably explains why my prayer life is so terrible. It's because I think, you know, I'm tempted to look at the statistics of my life, the, the resume of my life, and to look and say, well, you know, 
I've, I've achieved a good bit. Um, I'm financially okay. I've got uh, uh, Christian ministry. I'm, I'm a Christian minister. I'm nice. People seem to like me. And those are the things that I'm tempted to run to and to find my confidence in. And if those are the things that I run to to find my confidence, then I won't need Jesus. And when I do that, I'm, I'm avoiding this aggressive cancer that then goes untreated. Look, here's what we learn with all of this, is that your badness does not keep you from Jesus, but your goodness can. If you read the New Testament, read the stories about Jesus, you will see there is nobody that is too bad for Jesus. Murderers, prostitutes, tax collectors. There's there's nobody that's too bad for him, but there are lots of people that are too good for him. Your badness doesn't keep you from Jesus, but your goodness can. Now look, um, I'm going to take a bit of a risk here. I want to read you a story. A um, a story by Flannery O'Connor. She's a Christian author, Southern Christian author, um, in the mid-1900s. She died when she was 39. Uh, She wrote this kind of in Deep South in Georgia. This is the the story that I want to read you is um, a story called Revelation. It was one of the stories that she wrote almost right before she died. And uh, she's a Christian author in the South. And so you're going to hear things in here. You're, you're going to hear some racial slurs in here, just to give you a warning. But I want you to know that she's not supporting them. She's not condoning them. She's actually setting up the people that use them for the kill. So here's what I want you to see. Uh, just to set up some, some of the characters here. I'm just going to read you a few excerpts. I'm not going to read this whole thing. Character-wise, you have Mrs. Turpin who is this religious woman, good, upstanding religious woman, and her husband, Claude. By the way, this whole story takes place in the doctor's waiting room. So you have Mrs. Turpin and Claude. You have a white trash woman and her dirty little kid. That's the name of the character in the book. Uh, You have a college-aged girl named Mary Grace and her mom. And then you have this one other pleasant lady, and they all are talking in the waiting room. So here it is. Next to Mrs. Turpin was a fat girl of 18 or 19, scowling into a thick blue book, which Mrs. Turpin saw was entitled Human Development. The girl raised her head and directed her scowl at Mrs. Turpin as if she did not like her looks. She appeared annoyed that anyone should speak while she tried to read. The poor girl's face was blue with acne, and Mrs. Turpin thought how pitiful it was to have a face like that at that age. And she gave the girl a friendly smile, But the girl only scowled the harder. Mrs. Turpin herself was fat, but she had always had good skin. And though she was 47 years old, there was not a wrinkle in her face except around her eyes from laughing too much. So they're setting it up, and they're getting going. And they start talking to people in the waiting room. And and Mrs. Turpin is talking about how her and Claude, her husband, own this farm. And they uh, have these hogs that they raise. And so she says... You know, she's talking to the people in the waiting room, and she says, if you want to make it farming now, you have to have a little of everything. we got a couple of acres of cotton and a few hogs and chickens and just enough white face cattle that Claude can look after them himself. One thing I don't want, the white trash woman said, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand. Hogs, nasty, stinking things, a grunting and a rooting all over the place. Mrs. Turpin gave her the merest edge of her attention. Our hogs are not dirty, and they don't stink, she said. They're cleaner than some children I've seen. 
and their feet never touch the ground, we have a pig parlor. That means you raise them on concrete, she was explaining to the pleasant lady. And Claude scoots them down with a hose every afternoon and washes off the floor. Cleaner by far than that child right there, she thought. Poor nasty little thing. He had not moved except to put the thumb of his dirty hand into his mouth. The woman turned her face away from Mrs. Turpin. I know I wouldn't scoop down no hog with no hose, she said to the wall. You wouldn't have no hog to scoop down, Mrs. Turpin said to herself. So they get going. And Mrs. Turpin keeps talking about this lifestyle that she has on the farm. And so she starts talking and striking up a conversation with Mary Grace, the girl with the book. And this was a bad decision. Here's where it gets spicy. <laughs> Can you tell I read to my daughter every night? <laughs> You must be in college, she said boldly, looking directly at the girl. I see you reading a book there. (laughs) The girl continued to stare and pointedly did not answer. Her mother blushed at this rudeness. The lady asked you a question, Mary Grace, she said under her breath. I have ears, Mary Grace said. Her mother's mouth grew thin and tight. I think the worst thing in the world, she said, is an ungrateful person. To have everything and not appreciate it. I know a girl who has parents who would give her anything. A little brother who loves her dearly and who is getting a good education. Who wears the best clothes and who can never say a kind word to anyone. Who never smiles and just criticizes and complains all day long. Is she too old to paddle? Claude asked. And the girl's face was now almost purple. Yes, the lady said. I'm afraid there's nothing to do but leave her to her folly. Someday she'll wake up and it'll be too late. It never hurt anyone to smile, Mrs. Turpin said. It just makes you feel better all over. (laughs) Of course, the lady said sadly, but there are just some things you can't tell anything to. There are just some people you can't tell anything to. They can't take criticism. Here's the part I really want you to pay attention to. If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition disposition besides, I just feel like shouting. Thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been different. And at the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. The book struck her directly over the left eye. (laughs) It struck her Almost at the same instant that she realized the girl was about to hurl it. Before she could utter a sound, the raw face came crashing over the table toward her, howling. The girl's fingers sank like clamps into the soft flesh of her neck. And she heard the mother cry out and Claude shout, Whoa! And there was an instant when she was certain that it was about to be an earthquake. And so what happens is that these doctors come in, they like pull down Mary Grace, sedate her with a syringe. Kind of the chaos breaks out. Everything begins to calm down. They set Mary Grace up. She's kind of chilled out now. Mrs. Turpin is kind of panting on the table or on a chair. And here's what happens next. Mrs. Turpin's head cleared and her power of motion returned. And she leaned forward until she was looking directly into the fierce, brilliant eyes. There was no doubt in her mind that that girl did know her that she knew her in some intense and personal way beyond time and place and condition. What you got to say to me, she asked hoarsely and held her breath, waiting as for a revelation. And the girl raised her head, her gaze locked with Mrs. Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. 
She whispered. Her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment as if she saw with pleasure that the message had struck its target. And Mrs. Turpin sank back in her chair. Here's what's going on. This little girl exposes this good religious woman for what she really is, an old warthog from hell. And what did Flannery O'Connor choose to name this little girl? Mary Grace. It is God's grace to you to expose you, to rip off the mask of your own self-delusion, the delusion that you're in and that I'm in, into thinking that we're okay and we're good and we don't really need help, to expose us for who we are and to show us that we are desperately sick and desperately needy. Don't you see, that, that's the bad thing about being good. You avoid people because you think you're better than them. Just like Mrs. Turpin did with the white trash lady. Avoid it because she was better than her. And you're blind. You will never be open to responding to Jesus. So that's the um, good thing about being bad. The bad thing about being good, and I'll be brief with this last point. The amazing thing about Jesus. This is the last thing. It's interesting if you look at verse 17. Jesus compares himself to a physician. He, and so what he says is, you know, only people who are sick go to the doctor. But I'm the doctor. They are coming to me for healing. And what he is saying is, when sinners come to me, I actually change them. Je- Jesus transforms the life of, of tax collectors and, 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 and uh, prostitutes. He doesn't want them to stay as they are. Why? Because that life that they are in is toxic. It's, it's miserable. They're not happy. What he does is he calls us out of our previous lifestyle, our previous identity to usher into his kingdom so that he can order our life and he can set us straight and he can give us freedom and joy and life. Look, Jesus loves sinners absolutely, but he loves them too much to let them stay the way that they are. And so look, I mean, just look at even in this own little story how Levi's life is transformed. He, he's, he's pulled out of this corrupt, toxic lifestyle that he's in. And, and actually in verse 15, he immediately starts doing evangelism. He brings all of his non-Christian tax collector friends and sinners over to hang out with Jesus. I mean, his life has changed. And Jesus is saying, I, I want to change you. I want to heal you. So the question is, how do we get this transformative, life-changing power deep down into the core of who we are? Well, I want to make two quick practical applications and then we're done. The first application to all of this is that you have to focus on the cross. You have to focus on the cross. Jesus wants to give you life, but he knows that the only way that he can give you life is if he gives up his. And so as the story of Mark continues, what happens is that he basically wraps himself up, as it were, in our sin. And goes to the cross and therefore gets crushed underneath the weight of God's wrath and God's judgment. And then when you hook into that by faith, he gives you life and he frees you. But but the cross is not just what saves you. It's It's the very thing that begins to sanctify you. Meaning, to take this a step deeper, if you think about what the cross actually communicates to you, it communicates to you two things at the same time. On the one hand, it says to you, you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. And when you begin to get this into your bloodstream, this humbles you into the ground. This, 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 this equalizes everybody. And what this means is that this says to you, you are not better than the people you thought you were better than. <laughs> the, 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 
people that you thought were beneath you are not. This humbles you. This crushes you into the ground. And what this means is that you can now actually be around those types of people that you used to avoid. You can actually listen to them, learn from them, be around them. It, it humbles you. Because then, when you get this first half of the gospel, when you get this first half of, half of the cross, what you begin to think in your heart is that nobody needs Jesus more than me. Nobody needs grace more than me. Not, not the pedophile, not the racist, not the terrorist, not the wildest person on this campus. No one needs God's grace more than me. Don't you see how that humbles you? It says that you're so sinful Jesus had to die for you, but the other half of the gospel says you're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. And this is what gives you boldness and confidence. This is what frees you to actually begin to talk about your junk and your garbage and your struggles without any worry of what anybody else is going to think. Who cares what someone else is thinking when the king of the universe already loves you and has and approves of you? When you have the approval of the king, who cares what the servants think? Don't you see how the, when these things come together, this humbles you and gives you boldness at the same time. And you can actually love and be around the people that used to make you angry, used to offend you. You can now move towards them with a sweetness, with a, with a charity, with, with, with a gentleness. The gospel transforms you when you begin to focus on it. That's the first thing. First practical application. Focus on the cross. Second practical application is to repent of your goodness. Repent of your goodness. You don't have to be a Christian to repent of your sin. There's lots of people that hate their, the bad things about them, repent of it, fight it. You know that you are a sinner saved by grace when you begin to repent of your goodness. Meaning, when you begin to look at how good you are as the very thing, the very reason why God loves you and the very reason why you're special and different and better than other people. You know what I said? That voice that pops up and says, well, at least I don't do X. At least I don't, I, I don't do that. At least I'm not like that. That is the very thing that you and I need to repent of. That's the very thing that is actually keeping you from Jesus. It's not your big flagrant sin. It's not your porn addiction. It's not this. It's not that. It is the thing that you love the most about yourself. And if you're, a, if, if you're a sinner saved by grace, if you're a Christian, then this frees you to actually repent of that because you know that you have Jesus' goodness, which is so much better. Focus on the cross. Repent of your goodness. And I'll, I'll end here. And I'm going to tell you how the story ends. The, the, uh, the story of Revelation uh, that Flannery O'Connor writes. Here's how the story ends. Mrs. Turpin, who you know was called the old warthog from hell by Mary Grace, she leaves the waiting room. And later that day goes home, and, and kind of as a coping mechanism to process what she's experienced, she's, she goes out in the field and she's you know, watering down, scooting down the hogs. And she knows that that message was sent by God. So she starts screaming to God out in the middle of this field, and she's screaming, how can I be a hog and me at the same time? What she's saying is, how can you call me a sinner when I'm me, when I'm good? She's pissed. And here's what happens. The, the scene changes, and she kind of gets caught up in this revelation. She kind of has this vision, and she sees this swinging bridge going from her farm into heaven, and she sees all these people going up to heaven on this bridge. And here's what she sees. It says, She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through the field of living fire. 
And upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, bands of black niggers in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs, and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. And she leaned forward to observe them closer, and they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, and yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. All of her religiosity, all of her goodness, all of her quiet times, all of her mission trips, all of her mission work, all of her worship conferences, all of that had to be burned away before she could enter into heaven. So my prayer for you and for me tonight is that God would be good and gracious to expose us into seeing what it is that we really love the most about ourselves, the very things that must be burned away. And that when we are exposed to those things, we repent of them and actually turn to a Savior that has a better goodness for us, a more secure righteousness, a more more secure and stable acceptance of us. That's my prayer. And that really is my invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, I do ask that you would give us eyes to see through our own, our own press. Father, we are so tempted to believe uh, all the press that is surrounding how great we are, and we're tempted to believe all the things that, uh, that we do that is so great. And there are things that we do that is really great. But when we look to those things to validate why you love us, why we're special, why we're different, Father, we, we are like Miss Turpin. We're, we're old warthogs from hell at that point. We do pray that you would be kind and be gracious to let us see through our own goodness, to repent even of that when it becomes the very thing that keeps us from you. So, Father, allow us to see our need, allow us to see our great need for a Savior. And I do pray at the same time that you would allow us to see our great Savior for our need. We do pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.